This is Colin Zenshu, the podcast, episode 392 for the week of December 6th, 2015. Hello, what's up? Welcome to Kanz and Shu, the podcast, an extension of the all-encompassing Dragon Ball fan site. Kanz and Shu. That's right. We cover anything and everything Dragon Ball in hopes of enlightening and a little bit of entertaining. Of entertaining. Hello, Mary. Hi, Mike. Happy ten-year anniversary, bro, dog. Oh, thanks. We haven't been married ten years, but I guess that's for the site. That is for the site. That is why I'm saying happy anniversary. Oh, nice thanks. of you to notice, Mary. You're joining me very briefly here on the show. I am. It's one of those, I've already recorded a topic, I would like to record an intro, and I would like to not talk to myself. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I wasn't home. Um, but I don't know that I could have, with any authority, have spoken about the topic at hand for Oh, it would today. have been fine. You would have been great. We talked about music. The big question, and you'll hear a lot about this, the big question is, what defines Dragon Ball music? So maybe it's a little bit of a teaser. Mary, what to you defines Dragon Ball music? What defines Dragon Ball music? Yes. Ah, uh, epic sounds. Epic sounds? Epic, like orchestral. Oh, okay, because there's two sides to the word epic. One is... <laughs> I mean, more on the or- yes. orchestral side of okay. things. Okay. What else? Oh, man. Um, I'm going to say it. I'm sorry if I'm offending you, but dated. Dated? Yeah. yeah. But no, that doesn't that, mean bad. That's it's important. Just... Uh, so, yes. So, that topic, looking forward to it shortly. Uh, the raw recordings, almost an hour and a half long. We'll see what that turns into uh, after editing. Our good buddy, Kerbifer, Chris, joined me for that topic. Yes, what defines Dragon Ball music? You'll hear many conversation pieces about different composers from different sides of the world uh, and our thoughts on all those different types of musical scores. So, to at least start off the show, uh, rather than talking to myself, I wanted to get this little bit. It's nice. It gets the show warmed up a little bit bit and uh, we have these tiniest little bits of news to talk about right now. Mary, can I interest you in a Dragon Ball Super History book? Is it slightly used? No, it's not slightly used. It's coming out brand new in January 2016. Oh, okay. Okay, what, when January? I have a birthday coming up. The book comes out January 21st. Uh, it's called the Cho Shinshu, and they are translating it themselves as Super History Book. The year is the 30th anniversary of Dragon Ball's birth, although the 30th anniversary was last year. Yeah. So they're still kind of carrying forward with that. They are certainly riding that high. This is the anniversary book to commemorate this momentous milestone includes the storyboard for the final chapter of Dragon Ball. Toriyama Sensei commits to a long interview looking back on the last 30 years since serialization began and we look back on 30 years of animation, games, and hobbies. Ooh. It's going to be 248 pages B5 size retailing for 3,500 yen and we did just get a new bit of information out of Psycho Jump that just came out this week. Uh, it's going to cover an overview of Dragon Dragon Ball drawings that were on the Jump Magazine's covers and initial sketches from Goku, etc. from the starting years. That sounds pretty awesome. That does sound I hope it's a lot of new material. Yeah, that's the thing. We most recently, other than things like the Super Star Guide, the Chozenshu were mostly repeats of the Daizenshu, adding a little bit of new information. It's been a few years since then. So to have, I mean, I'm not looking for new new information like new in the world of Shampa. That would be nice to get at some point, but let's let that show go on before you give me information about it. I'm looking for new old stuff, and I think that's what we're going to get out of this book, and that interests me. 
That sounds great. That's the thing that I'm interested in. Content, bro. Mary, can I interest you in new full-color editions of the manga? Is this like the third time they've attempted this? Yeah, this is about the third time they've been doing this. So, uh... we're talking about Japan right now. If you have been following it along in North America, this years ago at this point, it's sad that we can say that, put out the three volumes of the Cyan arc, and the Frieza arc is finally going to be starting up in the spring. Over in Japan, they released the entirety of, let's call it the Z portion, in print, so from Raditz to the end of Boo. They did do a full-color edition of all the original chapters. Those have only been released digitally in Japan. Oh. They're finally going back and doing print editions, going back to the beginning. So the Boyhood arc is going to be four volumes long, and that will be coming out in January as well. So it's going to be a busy month, January in Japan. Wowza. Yeah. Uh, some of the full-color stuff that came out in Japan gave us lots of good new Toriyama interview Q&A stuff. Not every volume did. Kind like every other volume or two in a row would give us Q&As. So I'm curious to see what the Boyhood arc will give us at this point, just a couple weeks from now. So wow. looking forward you to You guys are going to be busy. We will be busy. And then just in gaming news, uh, Super Saiyan God, Super Saiyan Vegeta and Kaioshin will be joining Zenkai Battle. It is, yes, indeed called Zenkai Battle now, not Zenkai Battle Royale anymore. They're in their 3.0 update. A lot of people are confused. Hey, why didn't you call him Super Saiyan Blue, Vegeta? Uh, Super Saiyan Blue was a bit of dialogue in the fifth chapter of Toyotaro's Dragon Ball Super manga. Uh, if you look on the page here, he is still being referred to as Super Saiyan God, Super Saiyan. For at least the time being, the foreseeable future, that is still the name of the blue-haired form. It remains to be seen if Super Saiyan Blue will be picked up as an official name, anything outside of manga dialogue. But two new characters coming to Zenkai Battle. That's cool. We are now about five years into this game's release. Wow. Can you believe that? I know, for years, all of our predictions episodes have been like, <laughs> this is the year Zenkai Battle Royale home release port. Oh, man. The game was built on PS3 oh, sort of hardware. Hmm. So I mean, we all just assumed it would be an easy port at some point. They have not stopped updating this game. It's been five years now. The test that launch in Japan. Something. December, or the end of 2010. I know. I know. So here's hoping we can get an updated port. The only other thing I want to say is uh, if you've been following me on Twitter, I have been pouring a decent amount of time into Dragon Ball Heroes Ultimate Mission 2 on the Japanese Nintendo 3DS. Again, this is not a new game. This game has been out for quite some time, uh, but there was a new update that they put out. I was really surprised that they've been putting out free updates to Ultimate Mission 2. We still haven't heard about, will they just do a third edition of Ultimate Mission on the 3DS. Hmm. Kind of surprised that they just continue supporting the game for free. But I think it was the 1.5 patch. Might have been 1.6. I think it was 1.5. That came out and there was a QR code for the masked version of Bardock, originally from Dragon Ball Online, now being ported over to Dragon Ball Heroes. Uh, that whole storyline with Bardock being taken over by Mira and Toa, uh, that didn't pop up in Xenoverse, that whole Bardock thing. But they're definitely going that way with Dragon Ball Heroes. So some of that latest material, they're giving you a couple one-offs in the current edition of the home port of Ultimate Mission 2. That's been out for a while. And of course, the uh, arcade version of Dragon Ball Heroes, now up to God Mission 5, and we're getting teases of God Mission 6, the fourth major update series uh, for the arcade version. Dragon Ball Heroes still going strong as well. That's really the news right now. I mean, it's been sort of quiet. It looks like we're looking ahead to a pretty busy January in terms of releases stuff. And Dragon Ball Super continues to go strong. We're into the Frieza retelling arc right now, and it's starting to be a bit different. 
from what the movie version was. I think that's a, a little bit exciting. It makes it a little more worth people's while. Yeah, to tune in week to week rather than saving it up for a while. Uh, we still need to really get into super content analysis and review here on the show. We will do that. It's been the kind of thing where everyone's busy with holidays and the topics that we can do are the topics that we can do. So we do what we do. When we can do it. it. So, Mary, thank you. You're Um, welcome. You contributed something. It was Uh, great to have you. I was a warm body. Thank (laughs) you. I didn't want to talk to myself. I was like, you, (laughs) come down to the basement. You could have had a cat in here and it would have served as equal of purpose. That's true. We could get Tyler here on the show. That might be okay. Poor dude just got smacked in the eye by one of the other cats. I think we should have separated him and brought him down. Needs to rest. Yeah. He watched too much Dragon Ball. Too violent. Yeah. They're so so impressionable. I had these kids today. (laughs) That's true. Well, uh, that's going to bring the intro and the news to a close. You are going to join me now with Chris Kerberfer to talk about Dragon Ball music and what defines it. And then I'll come back at you in about an hour and a half or so from now and we'll close up the show. Thanks, everybody. Joining me for a topic that he pitched to me, Koibafu. Oh, that's how that's how you pronounce it now. <laughs> All right. Uh, congratulations on ten years. But oh, first, thank of, you. first of all, yes, uh, I I quite enjoyed last. I don't even know when you put up the previous episode, but uh, have, I was having a lot of very fond flashbacks of all the stuff you and Julian was talking about. Oh, so, thank you. I mean, you are one of the folks you've been around for that entire duration. <laughs> yes. Longer. I, I no, I appreciated the little little shout out, and and for sure, I mean, I still I still often I think castrate myself with my first episode that I was on in two thousand six, I think at Anime Next. And by the way, yes, the fifteen was in fact referring to my age at the time. Oh lordy! <laughs> well, here you are, uh, a decade more experience under your belt, just like we I, say for Funimation many times. Uh, <laughs> Chris, hope. you are joining us for, and the us is just me. I'm still Mike. I'm still Fujito EX. I don't know what the rest of the surrounding show is just yet, but you're joining me to talk about music in the series. Now, we we sort of got into this ever so slightly on the last Kerblog episode you had me on, where yes, we were talking about Dragon Ball Super, and I wanted to talk about the music there. And I was like, hey, let's talk about the all of the musicians in general, because I have been uh, in the midst of working on a game project, and I was writing a lot, and so I needed a lot of music to listen to. So I listened to virtually every single piece of major Dragon Ball-related music uh, from many, many, many different composers, uh, most of, if not all of which, we're going to talk about soon. Uh, and now that I've become avidly more familiar with a lot of stuff that I hadn't previously heard before necessarily, I thought, hey, Mike knows everything about everything regarding the music to, to TBZ. That's so true. This, this would be a good thing. If anything, I think this is just going to be my self-indulgent way of learning more about the things I was interested in, and hopefully everybody else listening will also be interested too. Well, there you go. I mean, the podcast for me, I always describe it as uh, it's my excuse to get friends on and talk to them and to learn things from them. So if you're kind of shooting that back at me here i'm kind of okay with that well especially too this is this is episode 101 perhaps it's a new beginning perhaps this is perhaps everything you've done up until this point was constantly the podcast season one and now we're in season two i am more i've decided to to make i've marked that that's my and then then when we do the home release we'll completely change the season (laughs) i'm done making my jabs for at least five or ten minutes you're mean 
Chris, yes. you wanted to talk about music in the series. And of course, that will mean musicians and composers as well. Yes, uh, and again, just to dip back to what you're talking about in the Kerblog episode with me and Super. And it was kind of what defines Dragon Ball music. And I had a couple thoughts there. So do we want to kind of start the conversation there, even before we get to naming composers and the various shifts we've had in and also not had over the years, depending on where you're watching. Uh, Chris, I'll ask you, as someone who came in during, uh, I'll, to give people a little bit of a recap, when did you come into Dragon Ball fandom? And kind of what was your first exposure and how'd you go from there, like the 30 second version? Okay, sure. Uh, I grew up with it when it was on syndication and it was the Ocean Dub produced by Funimation. And uh, this was back when Shuki Levy of Power Rangers and Saban fame or whatever was doing uh, the background music for that. And then followed the show to Cartoon Network. Uh, by this point was when uh, Funimation had decided to produce the rest of the show in-house. From Texas, they were using Bruce Falconer as the composer for that series. Uh, I was watching a few different things that I could get my hands on, subtitled, uh, you know, probably bootlegged, uh, uh, in Japanese, and was getting my first exposure to Kikuchi's music, etc. Uh, had the Budokai video games, etc., with a lot of Kenji Yamamoto's music and Tower of Power and all that stuff. And then uh, I also, in kind of in tandem with that, I watched a little bit of the Spanish dub, which was my first real exposure to stuff like Chala Hedchala. Most of Kikuchi's like more recognizable background music from Z uh, was watching a little bit of GT subbed. I can't remember that that guy's name, the composer for that series. Tokunaga. Uh, and I was continuing onward with that, etc. And then I I ended up kind of you know, over the years got more and more and more and, and, and was exposed to virtually everything that we know now. So now I've been fully caught up. But <laughs> the other thing was I didn't grow up with all of with all of Z in Japanese. So I hadn't heard absolutely all of Kikuchi's like kind of more famous tracks uh, until recent years, uh, of which I'm now a, a, an avid fan. But uh, but I, I've, I've experienced like a lot of different things that's been all over the place with it in terms of specifically America, which is where some of the music stuff gets more complicated since I think I think that our dub, as far as I know, is the only one that has completely different background music of any other version that's been out there, right? You're kind of asking the wrong guy there, but at the very least, we're the only ones who decide to switch composers mid-series constantly <laughs> over and over. So something I kind of want to harp on in there, it's tough for me to say this, like this is one of those, I don't mean to offend you, but I think of you as one of the younger fans, but even then you're not truly that much younger than me in terms of the fandom because you came into it at basically the same time as me for Funimation's English dub. I came in during that original syndication broadcast. So for me, the first animation I saw with Dragon Ball was with Shuki Levy's score. It wasn't with Kikuchi and it wasn't with Falconer Productions. It was Shuki Levy. Mm -hmm. So... It's like I bring on someone for the younger perspective, but at the same time, you're also not young enough to have never known the Shuki Levy score. And I know that there's a sizable audience, even though we, of course, exclusively focus on the original Japanese version of the show. There's obviously a sizable audience that are only familiar with the replacement score. And of course, we welcome anyone and everyone to listen to the show. So I just kind of want to set the stage there. Um, but also, you continued to watch more of the dub long after I completely stopped. That's the realm you're in now which is animation and voice acting voice production direction uh i mean this is what you do for a living now so the fact that you kept up with it and really got to see the evolution of those voices and those composers um that's a good perspective for me to have on here so that's kind of like my justifications that makes sense 
No, totally. I mean, because the, the difference here, even though the, the age difference is not that, the, the gap isn't that wide necessarily, right. we have completely different experiences because the fact that you were slightly older, you had access to a lot of different kind of, you know, things in fandom. You know, you, you were around for like the, the trading, the, the fan sub kind of days and like being able to find stuff a little bit more easily. You know, right. I, I think, you know, and, and even Scott, I'm reminded, like Scott was watching uh, a lot of it in raw Japanese on the international channel. And, you know, I, what, what I had was more of a traditional, like, you know, tsunami watching American kids, uh, experience. Thanks, thanks to, to you guys, I was able to learn a lot more. Uh, and now I have a much more well-rounded kind of like appreciation for everything that makes the show what it is, uh, including its original music. Uh, because I'll even now out myself. <laughs> In in that 2006 episode, there was a thing where we went around and we picked our favorite piece of music from the show. And uh, I believe, I, and we had to perform it as well. I think was the joke was we had to like hum a few bars from it. I think it. so, yeah, yeah. And I and I believe I obnoxiously performed the piece of music of when Goku defeats uh, Kid Buu, Chibi Buu, pure evil, that the tiny one, uh, <laughs> with Falconer's track because I heard the Japanese one, which I believe is a piece of music from Movie Seven. I was gonna say it's the Movie Seven, seven Genkidama music, isn't it? Yeah, and uh, or at least and I, forming I, the the yes, attack. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and by that point, for the for the record too, just to give perspective on that, that was 2006. By that point, I was already like in love with Chala Hedgehala, We Got a Power, etc. You know, so I I had heard stuff from the Japanese version. That was just my thought at the time was no, I like this track more for this particular scene, which we'll get more into the specifics of that later. But I mean that that was that was me at the time was like no, dude, Falconer stuff. I, I I like it. I don't know whatever. I don't even know what you're talking about, guys. You know. All right. Well, I think that sets the stage for this topic. Then I want to break it into then and now. So at that time for your fandom, what defined Dragon Ball music to you? That is hard to say because let's look at the reasoning why that kind of stuff happens in the first place from okay. my, my own personal research. And, and for instance, you know, the, the now defunct, uh, for kids entertainment was a lot more notorious for this. Uh, typically the reason, the reasoning that I always heard, uh, for why anime music in the first place would be replaced, uh, when being brought over to America was for one of where was usually for two different reasons that would work in tandem with each other. One, cheaper to not license that part of the property and right. just produce your own stuff in-house for probably way, way, way cheaper. Uh, and the second reason being, oh, this is very antiquated because it's like 80s style stuff or whatever. Let's do something more contemporary that the little kids will like and appreciate and deal with more. Yeah, I, I think that's part of the medium at the time, too. We were very rapidly evolving our technology. So something that was even only four years old did feel older at that time than maybe something now that's only four years old, where we've moved to basically 1080p broadcast quality shows that are four five years old basically look the same you know of 
course, depending on art style, art direction, and you know, time and care put into it, basically look the same. But a show from 1992 could look wildly different from a show produced in 1996, 1997. Yeah, and I mean, Dragon Ball started in the 80s. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm going back and I'm watching uh, the original Mobile Suit Gundam series, which I never grew up with. And that show is so 70s and 80s, and I love it for that, but it's so that, you know? Mm. And, and Dragon Ball, and, and, and Z is very, is very much so 90s uh, in, in terms of kind of like its flavor, I guess you could say, uh, like as a show. Dragon Ball is very, very 80s. As far as like what, what defined Dragon Ball music, to be totally honest with you, at the time that the, the Shuki Levy era stuff was airing, honestly, I wasn't really thinking about it. I think the, I think the reality was that at that time when Saban was like in their heyday and just producing like tons and tons of stuff all the time. It all sounded the same, didn't it? Yeah, it was because it was him and like I think Ron Wasserman was the other like main guy that did a lot of the Power Rangers music. You know, it was that very like synthy pseudo electronic like almost kind of midi-esque. I know that's not actually midi, but like sure, sure. that that kind of like kind of stuff. And, and because it was just so, like, that was in everything, uh, I, I didn't really think about it that much. And to be honest, too, to kind of, you know, prove a point, I think that that's the reason why, say, in, in the alternate uh, Canadian Ocean dub of the rest of the show that they did, you know, from Trunks onward, where they literally just lifted other music from other shows that Shuki Levy had worked on, like Monster mm. Ranchers, English dub, and the Mega Man Ruby Mega Spears Man, cartoon. Yeah. Right. yeah, and it was, it, and it sounded the same. It was those same kind of instruments and the same kind of like, yeah. it's like wall-to-wall noise. You say that, but when I think back to those, I also feel like, and I think we'll get to this kind of feeling in several other scores, sure. um, the best word I can describe is like it has this ethereal feeling to it. Instead of the silence we're used to from the original Japanese version of the show, we get those long, drawn-out kind of low tones with maybe a little bit of percussion to it, but probably nothing during pan shots, those kind of things. Like, they didn't want to let it slow down, so that's what they used to give the illusion of continuation there yeah and you know that that's a funny thing that kind of continued onward with dubs in general at that time and especially for the uh the saturday morning buy the toys kind of shows where it's yeah. like we cannot have anybody ever shut up at any point in time so if, if anything maybe we were lucky in that regard because i feel like there was not so much of that at the time with the the the, the vancouver dub episodes that were airing because we had more of that kind of like all right we can be silent and, and just have that sort of noise yeah, in there for a little isn't bit. Isn't that funny that, you know, as much as those 68 episodes were cut down to 53, I feel like we still had room to breathe as opposed to Funimation's dub from edited dub episode 54 onward, where it was that if someone's turned away from the screen, they're going to just keep talking. As long as you can't see their mouth, we're going to keep them talking. But we're talking about dialogue here instead of music. But I think sure. that, that kind of ties together. So at the time, for you, the, the definition of Dragon Ball music was kind of 
just a continuation of other stuff you were watching. I mean, other shows that Levy was involved with. You mentioned Power Rangers, of course, the X-Men cartoon, depending on your age and the time we got into it. I mean, that mm. was available. I wasn't really watching a lot of that stuff at the time. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> so that didn't define it to me. And that's what I want to say is I don't think I had a definition of Dragon Ball music. And this is going to be really cliche and expected to hear from me. But it's also really tough for me to put in a realistic perspective because it's been so long. Yeah. I don't think my definition came until I started watching the show in Japanese. And suddenly that was, oh, this is the complete whole that I had been missing. Well, I, I think chronologically, in terms of America, I think we can we can definitely get to uh, Kikuchi because I do. I mean, we're going to be talking a lot about him, absolutely. Um, I, I guess before that, uh, since I guess in, in my case, chronologically for me, what came after that was Falconer, your your favorite, your your boy, your favorite. It's true, but there but there was an in between period because think about the first three movies that Funimation put out in conjunction That's true. with Pioneer. That, that is I that think, is very true. I think that was a huge turning point for the kind of like um, the perspective of fans who were still only taking in a Funimation production because suddenly right. you throw Pioneer into the mix and we we do not know at all what the contracts were, who was really in charge of those productions, how heavy Funimation was versus Pioneer. For whatever reason, those three movies were treated incredibly well. We mm. got very accurate script. We kept the original Japanese score in the English dub. We got dub-sub VHS releases. It was everything we had been promised for years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and, and funny, what kind of so watching some of those uh, recently for the first time in a long time, and yes, they, they do in fact hold up. It's some of the best stuff that... Uh, particularly came out of the the ocean era. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, I, I I think truthfully at the time that I because I had seen them air on TV. I think I saw unfortunately the uh, <laughs> the edited, edited movie the edited yeah. version of Tree of Might before I saw the the because I think I just no no you know what I might be wrong because I think I rented that from a blockbuster and then it aired as the TV show version. I was like, why is the why is the dialogue different all the of a sudden? Dialogue very different. Yeah. Why is why is Gohan saying Kamehameha while he's doing a Masenko? What is happening <laughs> right now? <laughs> but uh, I I will admit when I saw this at the time, uh, I I think that I, I didn't even really like notice that much the deal with the music at the time. Mm-hmm. Um so but but definitely like in in retrospect now, I mean like, you know, the the Dead Zone soundtrack is like some of my my favorite stuff that Kikuchi's done of See, like, like that, overall. And I think that movie has some of the most iconic. I think that was my early definition of Dragon Ball music when I finally got a chance to see that movie. And I can remember I actually didn't have those three movies fan subbed um, before I got the legitimate releases. So okay. I had downloaded a couple of clips of Funimation's English dub actually. Um, my local Suncoast I probably I can't I have no idea what store it would have been. Yeah. I uh, didn't get them right away so I was holding out a little bit um, but I was able to download you know those short 30 second quick time files that some people were able to capture and it, it really it was like being hit in the face just holy cap like this this feels so 
different. And by that point, I had already seen a little bit of other fan sub stuff, but I think it was hearing the English dub. Because remember, at that point, that was the English dub. There was no Texas voice cast yet. That mm-hmm. was the dub, those yep. voice actors. So to hear the dub with the original Japanese music, it completely transformed that cast. The script helped a lot, too. You're just a coward. You and the other two won't take me by surprise this time. You want a bet? I don't need any help finishing you off. Oh, yeah, for sure. And, you know, I mean, in terms of, like, the contrast or whatever, I I think I was going to get to this before. I think it's honestly more of, like, all right, we're in this kind of in-between period. We cut ties with Saban because we're not, like, going to play their game anymore or whatever. We're going to do things our way. I think it, honestly, I think it was my, it probably just was, like, an experiment of, like, all right, let's do this, put this out, see what the response kind of is, Mm -hmm. and then, you know, from there on. And you know what? If anything, maybe... That very well could have been kind of the uh, the opening we needed to what was later uh, the uh, the business proposition that was made that eventually also led to Steve uh, right, becoming right. a subtitler and then being like, all right, this this is this is proof that people will buy uncut DVDs with bilingual options on it, etc. You know, so that that might have very well just been like, let's just try this. Why not? And like, we don't. What have we got to lose? That's interesting because they they clearly were experimenting and they were, as we saw, eventually willing to jump in and and do some uncut stuff. But it felt like they were still so hesitant at the time. I think they were so afraid. And it makes sense because suddenly they were just Funimation and they were just in Texas. Mm -hmm. They did not have the support of Saban and the Ocean Studios cast. They had to go really conservative. And so this is one of those things that I say, you know, at the time I didn't understand. While I do now completely understand my underlying opinion opinion remains the same that I think it was a crap product I think it sounded awful then and now but at least I do understand and concede it probably had to happen that way mm-hmm. or it would not happen at all yeah and I mean you know what there's there's cases like that I mean you could you could look at Pokemon I I found out that there were other companies in New York where we you know where I came from mm-hmm. and the dubbing scene is very small now it's, it's nested non-existent but there were other companies like Central Park Media and Media Blasters yeah, yeah. that were looking at Pokemon and being like you know if that happened that show could have just been another anime on the shelf. It could have just been another, yeah, can you, can you, can anybody imagine a world where Pokemon did not get the marketing and the push that it did from the combination of four kids and Mm -hmm. it being on TV and WB being smart like Cartoon Network was with DBZ and being like, we want that shit, we want it. We want that because we know it's you. Yeah. And, and, you know, because that's the thing is it was a twofold strike with Pokemon and DBZ at the same time. And anime fucking exploded in the U.S. That's (laughs) what happened. You know, at that time. So we are at that point. You kind of wanted to go there too soon. I take it back. Let's get to 1999 with. 
Funimation, again, everything in-house now. Falconer Productions being brought on to do a continuing new score to the series. And long, 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 long time fans of Daizenshu EX, Pre-Konzenshu, may remember my review slash editorial slash tirade when I got in that Captain Ginyu assault or was double cross first i can't remember it was the the, 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 the first the first of the ginyu tapes Those first yeah. tapes yeah the first ginyu tape when i got that in and I, this is how i described it at the time i thought it was a joke it sounded mm. so bad i mean the voices were so bad the music was so bad and i think this has been washed away you can't put in your orange bricks you can't put in your blu-rays and see the product that was on VHS at that time because mm-hmm. things have been redubbed. Little musical cues have been slightly moved around. It's not exactly the same, but we're not going to talk about the voices. We're not going to talk about the script. <laughs> we are talking about the music. To me, it was suddenly, it was clearly different style of music than what had mm-hmm. come before. It sounded like the voices. It sounded like a cheap imitation of what had come before. And that makes sense because that's what the voice actors were told to do. That's probably what Falconer was told to do. That is exactly that is exactly what it was. In fact, I can just to jump in real quick. I, I found one interview, one video interview with Bruce Falconer recently, and he did reveal that yes, when I started, I was given some tapes of episodes from the Ocean Dub. I listened to the original music that I, you know, he didn't mention by name, but that was right. done by Chucky Levy. And he said, we want something kind of like this. And he said, okay. So I went with that sort of style and then put my own spin on it and then, you know, continued onward for the rest of the show. And that was his whole run right. with that. And and that makes sense. And I think that's why that early season three stuff is as terrible as it is. And while I still personally do not like later things that came in that dub, I can at least admit that some of it begins to have its own identity. And of course, that's also due to other composers coming in to right. <laughs> work alongside Falconer, who were able to put their own spin on things as well. But um, I, I want to talk about the tone of that music. So sure. I dug up a post. I, I guess I originally wrote this on Reddit and then I copied it and it was relevant over on uh, our forum. So I'm kind of going to read verbatim something I wrote. This is still the best way I felt I've been able to describe this. It's like there's this entire frequency missing in the Falconer production score. Like if you think of audio as a visual representation, so think of like a waveform, like mm. I edit this podcast with, and you just strike out a whole giant middle portion of it horizontally across. That's what the Falconer production score sounds like to me. There's something missing. There's something not there. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to read a follow-up that um, someone was <laughs> very good enough to kind of help place into context for me. This mm-hmm. was actually earlier this year. Mr. Walnut 4 on our forum was responding to something I wrote here. He says, other than a few exceptions, Falconer's tracks seem to consist mostly of bass and alto soprano parts. Very rarely is there more depth than that which leaves out much of the musical range that gives good orchestral music its depth when all you have is a drum beat an occasional bass note and a running alto part you get a very hollow piece of music that doesn't feel substantial when you listen to it and i think that really helps form i don't know how i want to describe it like it because i'm not a music person i played saxophone in middle school that was a very 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 long time ago people yeah so i don't have the musical lexicon to properly describe it. And so Mr. Walnut 4 here helped to give me a little bit of um, that verbiage to use here. And I think that's still the best way to describe it for me and how I feel about it. It's like there's a 
piece of the music missing. And if you were able to snap that piece back in there, I probably still wouldn't like it because I don't like the tunes, Mm -hmm. but the tone of the audio might feel more full. So that's how I felt in 1999 and it's how i still feel about that music now so i want to kind of this is also part of i think what even maybe led to the idea for doing this topic in the first place is i want to break this down and i think that this might even tie into the ultimate point of what defines dragon ball music Uh, i i too am not musically inclined uh, I have been very, very Great. blessed. Great. So why are you here? Why did uh, I not why, get a different why did I? Yeah. Why did I not doing? get? Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but that said, I've also been very lucky to have worked with a lot of really, really talented uh, musicians on my show, Tone. And uh, the reason that I worked with the people that I worked with is uh, is particularly because the the people that I had doing music for my show are folks that are really, really good at composing memorable melodies. Mm. I did an interview a long time ago with a gentleman named Grant Kirkhope, which, uh, Mike, you might not know by name, but he did a lot of really amazing classic music for a lot of awesome uh, Nintendo 64 games that were done at Rareware. I was going to say, the name is starting to come to mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember. Um, was he the one who put up his master tracks of the GoldenEye stuff? Yes, GoldenEye. He yeah. did Banjo-Kazooie, Donkey Kong 64, tons of stuff. He's sure, super, sure. super talented. And in that interview, which I just recently like, listened to again like separately from this a little while ago, he talked about how he's really sick of a lot of modern games and movies that just have wall-to-wall white noise and, and sound and stupid like non-music as their score and that bores the ever-loving shit out of him and he misses you know when stuff had like a, a tune that you could you know memorize, memorize and, and associate with and enjoy in that way and and me and all my friends who were you know in the interview talking with them were all like yeah we agree that's the type of stuff that we like and that's why we love and still memorize all of your stuff from Banjo-Kazooie etc for all of these years Interesting, but I kind of want to interrupt there because, so I think to a game like Skyrim that has a four CD soundtrack, a ton of music in that game, and it's got, sure, the memorable stuff, like the main opening theme to Skyrim, but most of the music in that game is contextual and just kind of going along with you, and it'll do crescendos when you get into a fight, but I wonder if that's the kind of stuff that he's referring to, and it's interesting because I like both styles, and I think it depends on on the type of game because you think back to older games one of my favorite games if not my favorite game is the original Legend of Zelda on NES there's no downtime in music it is very short loops of music in the grand scheme of things and i love how it works there but then you do have a game like skyrim elder scrolls 5 which scales it back and does have that kind of nothing music going on for a while the context of the game is important there and i wonder again i don't have the musical background to do it but i do question the i wonder what types of experiences he's referring to there well we, we definitely talked about a lot of like i think more so movies uh as well and, and just kind of like that that's sort of like the style that's sort of evolving um but yeah. I, I guess kind of kind of to go back to your uh to, to your question a while ago of like what defines dragon ball music by the time that both Falconer had come in and then eventually when I started to hear a lot more Kikuchi stuff and grew to appreciate that. And again, even, even with that, I know that he didn't compose, uh, you know, Chala Hechala and We Got a Power, right. but I had heard those songs and, and I loved those songs. I did not grow up with those openings, but I, I sought them out, loved them to death, and I would go to your website and look up the lyrics <laughs> and sing them to myself in my kitchen. Right. Um, but the, the point with that is, I, I really looked at, okay, what is it about Falconer's music that, that people still defend and look back upon so fondly and blah, 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 et cetera? 
And, and, you know, in, in my going back and listening to a lot of stuff, uh, you know, I, everything I possibly could, every, every composer, et cetera, from all these different games and parts of the show, et cetera, I realized that what it is specifically is that I think, if anything, it was this kind of halfway point between the iconicness and the memorability of Kikuchi, it, it, like, spiritually, not, not like he was, he wasn't imitating its style, obviously, but in terms of, like, you know, Kikuchi, in, especially in the series, had a lot of really, really awesome arrangements, as I've discovered, of Hedgehala, We Get a Power, Bokutachi, etc., right, right. as pieces of music from, like, from the actual show, right? Mm-hmm. Combined with stuff from the movies, etc., and, and some other original pieces, etc., etc. In Falconer's case, what he did, especially, like, over the, like, like once the Frieza saga was done, and, and that was a nightmare for everybody, uh, <laughs> once he got to, to, you know, past that point, uh, what was happening a lot was characters were getting their own jingles. They were getting their own themes, and mm-hmm. those would get arranged in different ways. There's there's a you know a different arrangement of the the boo theme for each of the different forms. There's a different arrangement of the cell theme for each of the different forms, and the androids that kind of led into the cell theme, etc. There's a Vegeta theme. There's sort of a Gohan theme, etc. And a lot of people, I, from from what I can remember from myself at that time, and from other people that I had talked to that remembered that stuff, is like, yes, I remember that track during that particular scene. I remember this associated with this character. And if anything, you know, we completely skipped past this, I guess chronologically, but we're going to get to Yamamoto later. But Yamamoto, back in the day, on a lot of the early video games, composed themes for the individual characters in a lot of the video games. Right, which would carry forward to future video games. I mean, yeah. we had uh, Hikari no Willpower span over several games. Especially between Super Butoden 2 and 3, we had themes that carried forward. Uh, we had the Evil Prince Vegito theme that carried forward, like Hyperdimension and stuff. Um, and I do want to get to that at some point, which For is sure. the, the alternate Japanese score to the series. But um, there's a, So there's a couple of key points in some of the things you were talking about there. And mm-hmm. one is character themes. And I think that's something that was always levied against the Japanese score, which is like, well, not every character has a theme. Like, yeah, not Every character does, because that's kind of stupid. But all the main characters really do have their own leitmotifs that get carried forward. I mean, Vegeta's violin theme is absolutely breathtaking in Kikuchi's score. Uh, Piccolo's theme carried forward from the very first Dragon Ball TV series, armored into movies and armored into the series. There was that stuff there. And I think because it wasn't hammered into your head, maybe it didn't become as memorable to fans who were only spot checking the Japanese version. I think that's a possibility. Well, I mean, it also, I mean, honestly, it also really does come down to, yeah, the lack of exposure at the time. That's what we got. That's what, right, we, right. what was hammered into our head in general was because that was what the show it was, was presented TV, to us as. Yeah. Yeah. 
yeah. the VHS, easy VHS releases. So one of um, the other things I want to attack here, there's a couple different portions, is the amount of memorable themes. And this is something I think too, really with Final Fantasy video games, there's a couple Final Fantasy games that have like those two or three amazingly impressive song. So if we take Final Fantasy 7, we have mm. Aerith's theme, we have One Winged Angel, uh, we have Genova. Uh, the rest of the FF7 score is really good. Mm. In fact, it's probably great. But those couple few songs kind of like take the cake. Totally. Then you get something for me. Again, I'm loving Final Fantasy 14 since it's a reboot. It's been one of like the mainstays of my life. I've I've heard. <laughs> Final Fantasy 14 has very few of those like this song. Listen to this. This one song will blow you away. But every song in the entire score to FF14 is at that like A minus level, B plus A minus level. And so mm. as a collective whole, I feel that the FF14 score is better than some of the scores to the other Final Fantasy games that are that you think back to like, oh yeah. FF7's great. It's got One Winged Angel. What about all the other stuff in there? Like, there's dozens of songs I could point to in 14 that would do that. And that's how I'm going to equate Shinsuke Kikuchi's score versus the Falconer production score. Not with quality, but with memorability. And I think right. it's cheap memorability. I think to Cell's theme, that has been remixed to death. The do 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 yeah. <laughs> How could that not get stuck in your head? But that's that cheap memorability I'm thinking too. I, I don't feel like that has any true God. I can't believe I'm doing this. I think there's no artistic merit to that composition. I think it's cheap and disgusting. I, I will say that that one is to just to be fair. That one is not one of my favorites, like of the ones that I remember from that time anyway. So if that makes you feel any better, <laughs> not really, but okay. I appreciate that. But that easily gets stuck in your head versus the entire breadth of the Kikuchi score collection, which at this point I do intimately know, like of course, yeah, of numbers course. and can instantly start reciting like entire episodes worth, but it's that constant B plus A minus level versus the two or three A pluses in a C of C's and D compositions. Right, of course. So, so that's kind of another angle of my description here. Something else I want to talk about that you just started to hint at and that we started to talk about in your curb blog. And this gets back to the, the true topic here, which is what is the definition of a Dragon Ball score to you? Mm. To me, the identity of the show is defined by its opening and ending themes and by what you were talking about there, where we do get those themes integrated into the score itself. So you think to the first Dragon Ball TV series with all the cute little Makafushiki motifs that get tossed into the score. Uh, yeah. Even the ending theme, I'll give you romance, gets tossed in there. DBZ movie two, DBZ movie two. It's I think it's when Goku's going up through who's the yellow one? Is that Misukatsun? I think the, the yellow, the yellow fat one yeah yes, that yeah one. <laughs> there's a makafushiki jingle in there and that's like yeah. that happy uh reminiscence kind of thing
throughout all of Z, you get the Hedgehallah and we get the power. Or, or no, back, back up, back up real quick. I got I to add one even better than, than the other one you just mentioned a second ago. Movie sure. one, G- Goku and Piccolo fighting each other. It's a mashup of Makafushiki and Piccolo's theme uh-huh. from Dragon Ball while they're fighting. And it's like two seconds long, but it's the cool. I never noticed that because I didn't see that dub. I, I didn't see the dub of, uh, of Dead Zone or Dead Zone at all, really, mm-hmm. uh, for years until after all of Dragon Ball aired uh, on Cartoon Network, and we got all of Kikuchi's music kept. And then I was intimately familiar and loved Makafushiki Ad- Adventure. Ad- mm-hmm. I, almost, I almost said Adventure. <laughs> <laughs> I do that too. <laughs> I go back and forth. Do I do I just say Makafushiki, and should I just say Mystical? I don't yeah. know. Whatever. <laughs> but 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 like seeing that again, then hearing that mixed with Piccolo's theme, which I'd also heard in in the show by that point, uh-huh. I was like, that is the coolest goddamn thing ever. And I only now appreciate that now that mm. I know both of those themes. But that's really really clever how they did that. You know, love that. what you and I were talking about and we'll talk more about here is that continued into GT. Don Don is integrated into the score beyond just the recap music. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hitori Janai, No Longer Alone, heavily integrated into background music as well throughout the entire run of the show. And yeah. I think that being a part of the show's identity, not as just the opening theme, but like this underlying repeated but in different ways kind of music mm-hmm. lends it that identity. That's something that I will credit the original syndication broadcast with the Shuki Levy score. You know how Rock the Dragon goes? It goes do 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 do. If you think to some of the score in that version of the show, it's much more downplayed, but you will, you'll hear do 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 do. And it'll be like at a, at a slightly different time signature, but it's still those same notes. And that lent it an identity. That's something that in 1999, Funimation's dub with Falconer Productions didn't have for a while. Remember, Rock the Dragon was still the opening theme for season three in 1999. You know, it's funny you mentioned that. I actually just discovered something recently that I never even noticed as a kid. And I I will admit, and you can totally stole me from our insolence. I I thought this was kind of cute. So in that interview that I found, this video interview, it was a guy on YouTube who did it with him. I unfortunately can't remember his name, but uh, he was asked, like Falcona was asked what was his favorite track. And he mentioned that overall his favorite was the opening theme that he did, which, you know, you obnoxiously know as the episode title on the... But he mentioned this, and I never noticed this when this first aired, uh, probably because I was just more excited about, oh boy, GT is coming. Um, so in the final scene of DBZ where Goku flies off with Oob and we see the little quick montage of the other characters still continuing to fight at the tournament 
And, uh, and then it ends with uh, Goku and Uju like the, yeah, let's go thing. And then they fly off and the narrator says a couple last words. Uh, there was a remix of that combined with, uh, I think what he considered to be like sort of the, the earth, uh, like, like peaceful theme that he had kind of consistently throughout the show. Mm-hmm. It was a cross between that and the opening theme that he did for the show. Oop! Let the training begin! Yes! No need to be polite. Yell! Let it go! Yeah! Once more! This time, let the whole world hear! Yeah! (laughs) And hearing that, and hearing that, I'm like, okay. That's kind of cute. I that I, I like that. That's clever for what it is, you know. Mm. It, it again does not even remotely give the same like <gasps> feeling I get from like from like Hedgehala, et cetera. But just that the idea of that is like okay, that's cool. That has effort put into it. That there's something like y- you know any, anybody with attachment to that can get something out of that, and sure, and it's it's sure. it's effort, right? Uh, that's not to give too much credit, but I'm saying like that that's a thought process, and I see that. I'm like all right, there's there's value to that. Right. Um, here's the other thing too, and, and I, I want to leave this into some of the other composers that came later. By the sure. way, so you think about Kikuchi's music, and we were able, we were, we were lucky, as I mentioned briefly before, to have gotten his music preserved when uh, Dragon Ball, original Dragon Ball, was airing on Cartoon Network. They decided, okay, this works for this show. We're going to keep this. Now, Kikuchi's music, with no insult whatsoever. It's very 80s, it's very 90s in that kind of way. It's, it's a lot of horns, it's like old school cartoon orchestral kind of stuff. It was not like what we were getting in other shows at that time where it was like a lot of electronic stuff and, and like, you know. Ah, well, here's the thing. It wasn't like what you were getting in other kitty action shows, but it was like other stuff we were getting in comedy cartoons, though. Yeah, Warner Brothers stuff, a lot of the Spielberg, uh, WB yeah, yeah. crossover kind of stuff. You know, in, in that case, like, the they Disney had a whole cartoons. orchestra really doing it. Totally, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, and, and I think, I think what probably like the stereotypical, like American kind of perception of, of this was, was like, okay, this is an action show. So we need like wall to wall and that kind of shit everywhere. Cause like, that's what the kids are going to get hyped up on their fucking yes sugar no. cereal I, shit. I think, you know? I think you're giving them an excuse for what were business decisions. Not, not, not an excuse, but more of like, I'm trying to break down what their thought process probably was. And again, I think you're giving them an artistic excuse when it wasn't, it was a complete completely business related business oriented business instigated decision which was yeah. save money and make money all that yes that also but but again like i mentioned the other reason and i've i've actually heard this from like people that have that have been in those positions where like sometimes it is a matter of well we feel that this is also like something that american kids will like more whether or not they're right is totally up for debate and you know that's <laughs> interpretable i guess but uh, but that but that's a lot of also where it comes from. In addition to the fact, oh, it's cheaper if we just do it ourselves, you know. So where else are we going here before we get to alternate composers and and when do we want to do the alternate Japan thing? Sure. Well, I would say for because I, I still want to talk a tiny little bit more about Kikuchi because I feel <laughs> that Dragon Ball airing on Cartoon Network was the first time in a, in a bigger, more consistent capacity that we really got. Kikuchi's music because that was we got the entire show except for those fir- first 13 but that was very short-lived and they we did got, redub those so yes they did and, and what we got that entire show 
on TV, wall to wall, with the original music and with the music that virtually everybody else in the world knows Dragon Ball for. Mm-hmm. And I don't know a single person. In fact, if anything, often these days, sometimes I'll, I'll not only meet people who are like, you know what, I actually liked Dragon Ball more than Dragon Ball Z. Like, people who are like casual like anime fans that just happen to see it on Cartoon Network. They actually have fonder memories of watching Dragon Ball as opposed to Z. And I never hear a single person be like, yeah, but the music was really like bland and like 80s or like outdated or whatever. Nobody has anything bad to say. And, and everybody I know loves the, uh, loves the English version of Maka Fushigi. They love that tune. They love that song. It totally captures what Dragon Ball is all about. You know, Dragon Ball, like like original Dragon Ball, not not Z necessarily, because mm-hmm. um, because Chala had kind of its own thing going on, but uh, but yeah. So if anything, that almost kind of proves it's like, was there really that much of a risk, guys, to not going with you know the uh, the original music at the time for Z? Were you really so afraid that that, that kids were going to be like bored by that or or finding that's that's lame or whatever it's like i I, because when i see that as the ultimate kind of see they liked it nobody had any issue with how the music was originally as we've just and if anything uh, kind of on that same note wasn't there even an interview i think it was with gan or somebody about like oh yeah we we don't think that the kids are gonna like original dragon ball because it's too like kitty and wacky or whatever and dragon ball did just as well as far as i'm concerned when it was on cartoon network i mean it's never going to do and we even see this in japan now um with their younger generation it's never going to do as well as see something before we move on this will this is going to wrap up as the moderator this wraps up this section something i want to talk about where you're talking about uh, how the original score for dragon ball and dragon ball z felt with the respective decade it came from i think now these days the falconer productions score sounds more dated and more out of time than anything from Kikuchi's original score. Yeah. It it came at a time when the 90s were already over and it was imitating the 90s and kept imitating the 90s for another four (laughs) years. And and at that time, at at that time for me, I was in college at that time. I Mm. listened to it and I was like, this is embarrassing. This is completely (laughs) embarrassing. It, to me, the Falconer production score always felt like your grandma trying to do a rap. Like it was that (laughs) insulting and out of place. And I think now in retrospect, if you just listen to that music, you're like, wait, (laughs) what decade is this from? Are you serious? Are you serious? Yeah. That's how that score sounds to me versus the, this is everything you expect expect to hear coming out of my mouth it's you're either raving at me or clapping along like this is standard mic stuff here i think the kikuchi score is timeless and it sounds exactly like it should which is not from the 80s not from the 90s but from dragon ball so all right so exclamation point there moving on let's talk very briefly because this has been a discussion for the ages for the last few years because lol's yamamoto but okay. there was, and this is how we always described it, there was an alternate soundtrack to Dragon Ball in Japan, and that was via Kenshi Yamamoto in all the video games, specifically the 16-bit and 32-bit. We're talking about the Super Famicom games, specifically Super Butoden and Hyper Dimension, uh, and then into the 32-bit era, where we had Legends Ultimate Battle 22, reverse the order there, uh, and then Final Bout. Uh, the scores we had there, we had all those motifs like we were talking about. Trunks had his own theme. Goku had his own theme. Vegeta had his own 
series of themes or various games. It emulated, just like Yamamoto did in Kai, where he emulated the style and tone of Kikuchi with his own flavor, the exact same thing was going on in the 90s in the video games. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why, despite all the problems we had with placement in Dragon Ball Kai, with a lot of tracks being reused, Mm -hmm. overall, it still felt like Dragon Ball music. And even though we didn't like it as much as Kikuchi music, for all the problems it had, to me, that still felt like Dragon Ball music. I think if you dive back, remember, this podcast has been going for 10 years. There's mm-hmm. a point you can dive back to. I'm pretty sure Julian and Mary and I were talking about if we were to get a new Dragon Ball series. Can you imagine? We were once saying that. If we uh-huh. were to get a new Dragon Ball series, we would want Yamamoto to do it in the style he had been doing. I think we were specifically talking about Budokai 2 and 3. The music in those games felt completely like Dragon Ball, when Yamamoto got a chance to come back and put his own new modern spin on Dragon Ball music, it still 100% felt like Dragon Ball music because he got the identity of that show. He also stole that identity from many other places. <laughs> that aside. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I want to pop in with something because you mentioned uh, the Budokai games real quick. Okay, so Tower of Power, Kenji Yamamoto, as well as um, as well as uh, Hironobu Kageyama singing the new songs that we got for a lot of those games and everything yeah, as yeah. well. So that that's that definitely to us it feels very Dragon Ball. At the same time, the the actual you know the choice of instruments, the the kind of like the style of it, mm-hmm. it, it was it was definitely very much its own thing. And not just like more Kikuchi esque stuff. It, it had its own identity to it, and it, but it fit with Dragon Ball. And it was Stradivarius's identity, <laughs> right? And and now here's the thing too. Here's here's something. Here's here's something to think about. So recently, I went back and I watched an episode of um, of Kids Next Door, uh, and there's an, there's a there's a scene where they're parodying Dragon Ball Z, right? Yeah, yeah, I and, know as well. Yeah, yeah. And and by the way, a little funny side note about that, just because there's no other place to ever tell this story. Um, the guy who was voicing Number Four in that scene had no idea what the hell was going on with with that. So my friend Ben Diskin, who voices Number One and Number Two on that show, and he was a big DBZ fan, was trying to teach this. And Dee Bradley Baker is like an A class like American cartoon voice actor. He was oh, teaching yeah, D, sure. D, He was teaching Dee Bradley Baker on, on this episode in like 2000, whatever the hell. How to do a Dragon Ball Z like power up yell, and he's like, I, I don't get it. And and well, that's so interesting because yeah, American cartoon voice actors, there's a completely different style of voice acting, and I think that's why you cannot look at the screen and say anime dub, anime dub, American cartoon, American cartoon, anime dub, American cartoon. Like you can pick out yeah how completely different those sounding dubs are yeah well definitely depending on the genre too i think that there's there's a little bit less of that nowadays like significantly more so but again that's a whole other subject right uh anyway the point is so in, in the, i'm just thinking of this as an offhand example but in that parody they just had like you know like really blaring obnoxious like rock music like, the, like just like wall to wall the identity yeah. of dub dragon ball at that time yeah now, and the other thing too, this, this actually just popped in my head a second ago. I'm remembering from the, from the depths of my memories. When you guys were reviewing, I believe it was the Jump Ultimate Stars game for, for, uh, for 3DS or, or, or no, regular the original 3DS, DS, I apologize. Yeah, yeah. Yes. 
Um, so in that, they didn't have any actual like licensed tracks from any of the anime equivalents right. of, of those yeah. different series. New but they came right. They came up with new compositions. But like for instance, the Naruto level with probably Konoha Village or whatever, yep. right, yep. was something that sounded like it totally could have been out of the show. It had like the old style of Japanese guitar, right? The, the sitar kind of thing, yeah, etc. Yeah. Right. And now that with that sort of thing, it's like yes, duh, that makes sense. With Dragon Ball, it's like what do we do? Right. So what did what did we, if you remember what did we get for the Dragon Ball level in that game in terms of the music? I don't remember, but from the way you're guiding me in this dis- discussion, I assume it's very loud, blaring music. Yeah. Now, and that is not to say that the Tower Power stuff and and Budokai and all that stuff was blaring. No, that music was awesome. However, even though it felt very Dragon Ball, again, it was incredibly different from uh, from Kikuchi's type of like instrumentation and everything. So part of me wondered at the time, and especially with the later games when like other stuff was coming in, etc. The Tenkaichi and slash sparking stuff was just Kikuchi music, but in the cases where they made new music for these games and they were very much like that, do you think because at the time this was when DBZ was like exploding in the U.S. and that was what people thought of for DBZ for a while was that type of thing? Do you think that there was some kind of back influence of, okay, well, this type of sound apparently kind of works with Dragon Ball, so why don't we try some more traditional, like, hard rock kind of stuff? Except in their case, do it in a way that actually sounds cool and not wall-to-wall noise. Maybe? I don't know. I don't know. It's really hard to say. Because, think about it, Kenji Yamamoto has done so, I mean, not anymore, obviously, but he's done so much stuff for DBZ, like so much music. And a lot of it is that type of thing. And it's completely different from, you know, what, what we think of when we, when we think of Kikuchi stuff. And that, if anything, almost by this point between like Kai and like all these video games and even like some of the new stuff, that's kind of like what it is more than ever now. Like Kikuchi, if anything, is associated with just the original run of those shows on TV at the time. And, you know, as, as we have them, like, on DVD and et cetera, if, if anything, you, one could argue that, like, that has forcibly become the quote-unquote identity of Dragon Ball music is that sort of thing. I would argue against that. Something that Kay on our forum talks about often is um, the way that this stuff works in Japan with music. Basically, TV companies and the way their licenses work, they can kind of use whatever music they want. And for a right. while there, even after Yamamoto had been stripped from Kai, there were some like news broadcasts and fluff pieces where Yamamoto music from Kai was being used in the background. But in general... Anytime Dragon Ball is mentioned on TV in Japan, uh, whether it's a new promo or something like that, if it's not Head Chala, it's a piece of background music from Kikuchi's original score to the series. That okay. remains the identity of Dragon Ball music as a whole in Japan for the people who are not forcing that music on you, if that makes sense. So if it's not coming from a video game composer, if it's coming from a newscast, if it's coming from any type of media coverage, it's going to be Kikuchi Dragon Ball music. Okay. You, you know, actually, you know, it's kind of funny about that. You just reminded me. You watched the Macy Day, the the, the Macy Thanksgiving Day Parade, like like 
once in a while. I have in the past, not for years, but I'm aware that it's a thing that happens. Okay, so, so just a little, little funny side note about that. So, like, for instance, when they have the Pikachu balloon. Yes. What is? What do you think the theme is of that plays? Of course, the original first American dub over yep. theme to Pokemon, because that is the identity of that show. Yep, yep. Even though even though probably the kids were actually getting up on Saturday morning and watching the show. I've never heard that before in their lives. Uh, yeah, until X and Y came out, and then the theme song became a remix of that first theme, LOL. Nice. Nice. Uh, on the flip side, the Sonic the Hedgehog balloon, which was brought back in recent years, has the first level theme from a Sonic the Hedgehog 4. <laughs> so, to which I just laugh and clap and be like, yes, suffer! But anyway. Um, yeah, no, but that, yeah, I, I think that on that same note, that's totally, it's that same kind of thing where it's like, this is what whether this generation grew up with that or not, that's that is that is Dragon Ball. That is this IP. That is what we, as a culture, associate with it more than anything. For sure, it makes sense. So um, here we are. We've been talking for an hour. We've talked extensively about Shunsuke Kikuchi. We've talked about Falconer Productions. We've talked about Shiki Levy. Uh, we have not even remotely gotten into. Mark Menza, Nathan Johnson, um, Tokunaga, even from the original Japanese GT score. We touched on that a little bit. Um, let's hit GT right now, real quick, okay. before sure. we jump back over to North American composers. Something that I already talked about was how the opening and ending themes for GT were uh, integrated into the score. I think a lot of people love the score for Dragon Ball GT and consider that one of the best parts of GT, myself included. Mm-hmm. Of um, and I think that's a another type of Shuki Levy to Bruce Falconer where it was here's the thing that came before this is your turn to do this can you do something in the same style but put your own spin on it and I think the Tokunaga score is very similar with the horns and I Mm -hmm. think that is something to me that again what is the identity what defines Dragon Ball music for me it is absolutely brass and woodwind instruments that defines Dragon Ball to me Uh, I think it's incredibly important Um, that puts it in that modern yet Chinese Western opera kind of yeah. feeling or yeah, Wuxia, sure. if you will. And I think that's uh, incredibly important. And we saw that carry forward with Kenji Yamamoto as we got to those later pieces of music. So real quick, what do you think about the GT score? And was that an appropriate continuation of where it had come from? You know what? I, in terms of it being a continuation, I don't think I'd be able to judge because interestingly, I think I heard more of that uh, than I did of, uh, of Kikuchi stuff for a little while yeah. because I was following, uh, first of all, I saw a little bit of GT in Japanese. I think I've told that story on other podcasts before when I saw the finale, like at a birthday party one, one year. And, uh, and I also followed it, uh, in Japanese as I was buying the, uh, the DVDs mm. from Funimation. Right. And, uh, and I, I have really fond memories of that music. It, in retrospect, it's probably not the strongest that the franchise is, has had, like, you know, all around. But I don't know. I, I uh, in fact, actually, I, I can, I'll say this. I have still to this day not been able to track down in, in my search for, uh, probably since your podcast started, uh, any kind of recreation or archived anything of the theme when Goku creates the final spirit bomb that kills Yi Shinlong. Uh, that I believe is an arrangement of the episode title theme. The ba, ba, da, ba, ba, da, ba, da, 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 da. I fucking love that track so much. <laughs> and I have never been able to find... If anybody knows where I can get that, 
legally. Uh, please tell me because I want that. Not so much legally, but one of the nice things about Funimation going back and putting that score uh, into the green bricks is people have been able to do some isolation stuff and um, capture some of that music from the DVD releases. But there's, yeah, there's definitely a lot of pieces. Oh, are you talking about the same pieces as me? Dun, 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 dun. Yes, yes, dun, dun, yeah. Dun, 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 dun. That's that's the one. That's Love the one. Yeah. that piece of music so yep. much. All right, so that was GT. What do you want to say about all these other composers, especially from the North American audience? I, I think they're all very interesting because none of them were around for very long. They were all selected to do these very specific one-off things. Um, right. Like do the Ultimate Uncut Edition, do Dragon Ball GT. And, you know, GT was obviously a longer thing, 64 episodes. Uh, yeah. You know, do music... Um, in the movies, some of the things we didn't talk about were all the real band inclusions, real in quotes, real band inclusions in Funimation's production of the movies. Uh, you want to talk about identity and what defines Dragon Ball music for a lot of people. Disturbed defines Dragon Ball music to them. <laughs> that's something I can. I get stupefied. I get stupefied. <laughs> cannot wrap my head around that at all. But to some people, the way they came in and some of the first things they saw, that is that definition for them. Yeah. Um, I don't know how much more I want to get into that because that was Funimation continuing a business practice that had been, we're not even talking about replacement scores. We're talking about licensing American music, like the Street Fighter 2 animated movie dub. Um, yeah. That, that stuff yeah. had been done for years. And here comes Funimation. Like, we're going to put disturbed in our movie. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll, I'll, I'll hit up a few real quick. Um, I did. Was Mark Menza dub GT, I think, right? Menza did GT. Okay, Sumitomo, for all the shit we give him, is a fucking god compared to the dub GT music that we got. And I'm not talking about... The, 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 yes, the rap is hilarious. It's a fucking joke. The music in Dragon Ball GT's dub was not music. Like, that is... Like, okay, yes, Falconers was not great. Shuki Levy's was not great. Those things don't define Dragon Ball. The stuff that we got in the dub of GT is not music. Well, that is here's not the music. Thing. It's it's noise. Th that was one of Barry Watson's last editorial decisions. And uh, yeah. It shows there. Where yes. <laughs> he was just making up artistic decisions that no one could play along with in any realistic yeah. sense. We haven't been talking about those editorial decisions much since we talked about uh, the transition from Shuki Levy to Bruce Falconer. But yeah, that was happening here with Watson in the background. That happened with GT, happened with Ultimate Uncut. I mean, we could rattle off all these names again, Johnson, Menza. Like, what other product was there? <laughs> the movie? Uh, yeah, no, yeah. Well, I mean, and I guess there was like, there was some of the American soundtracks, the replacement ones for some of the sparking games or whatever, but I mean... Well, you know, and I was just pulling that up. A lot of people say, oh, Yamamoto's music from the Budokai games. Remember, that's not how you say that word. We were talking about that recently. But I finally had Julian go through and translate the Japanese credits for the American, well, not American, but the international non-Japanese music. No, Yamamoto did not do the music in uh, Budokai Tenkaichi 2 and 3. <laughs> um, 
It oh, you're just being like, a dick. <laughs> I know. Um, it seems like Takanori Arima was probably responsible for two overall, whereas in three, it was Toshiyuki Kishi. Kind of tossing it out there that a lot of people say, oh, it was Yamamoto. But um, oh. no, I, you know, I listened to those alternate scores like this doesn't sound like Yamamoto at all. And sure enough, it, it's a bunch of different people in there. Um, and there's another name in there, Toshiyuki Kishi, um, from those games continued onward into doing Raging Blast as well. So we've had this alternate realm again of composers alongside Funimation doing the TV series and movies over in Japan. We had that alternate score going on with the games. It was like an alternate alternate score because opposed to the show and then opposed to Yamamoto alongside Yamamoto and then continuing onward post Yamamoto. We had different composers in the games, but then you get into things like uh, episode of Bardock, plan to eradicate the super science. We have new composers over there as well. Uh, Hiroshi Takaki, I think it was. We had more alternate Japanese Dragon Ball music. And this is before we even get to Norihito Sumitomo getting yeah. into Battle of Gods, Resurrection F, Buar. I, I, I actually do want to give I, I want to give some special mention to was it uh, one more time who did uh, a plan to eradicate the, the science music or Super Saiyans that is? Uh, I believe that was Hiroshi Takaki. Okay, Takaki I actually loved the stuff that he did for that. Uh, not the most iconic or memorable ever, but just really, really cool. And I felt like it, it, it lived up to the, the, the general, like, I guess Japanese type of, uh, of, of Dragon Ball music for sure with the, the, the sort of orchestral stuff. Yeah. Uh, I, I really like what he did for that special short, short lived, not like, you know, the most outstanding stuff ever, but I, I don't know. I, for some reason, like that little ending credits theme or like when they fight, uh, 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 what's his name? Big pink thing. Hachiyaku. Uh, ha- Hachiyaku. Uh, I, I love that theme in, in that special. I thought that was really well done. Yeah. So a little special mention there. special there is something that a lot of people point to as huh completely different feeling yet familiar feeling name we haven't had before but somehow within the span of these 40 or so minutes managed to capture dragon ball doing something totally different Um, absolutely i wish we got more of that at this point do we have to talk about norihito sumitomo it's kind of like the only composer going right now came in out of nowhere for battle of gods uh stuck around for first the boo arc of kai and then on to resurrection f and now continuing onward into dragon ball super i've described the battle of gods score as mostly actively disliking uh the frieza movie kind of not really noticing so maybe that's a step up from that uh mm. boo arc of kai fairly certain no one likes <laughs> the work that was produced there and now into dragon ball super where it kind of for me if i was going to give it a random score i guess it would be like a c plus where it's i don't actively hate this but man this is doing nothing for me i'm gonna i'm gonna give sumitomo a little bit of credit and we talked about this off camera i think after we did the cur blog and i'm gonna mention this here actually in, in fact to tie this in with the the kind of the bigger point too I feel like one of the reasons why a lot of people have fond memories of any of these composers' works on any incarnation of the show or a video game or whatever uh, most often has to do especially with a lot of the big moments. When you, th- when you think, Mike, of 
Gohan transforming into his next level of Super Saiyan, what do you think of? Unme no he. I mean, that that's different because it was an insert song. And I think that's, while that's incredibly important to point out, I think that's very different. So if you want to give a, another example, something like Goku's sure. first Super Saiyan transformation, to me, it's that piece from DBZ Movie 1, where right. even yeah. though that yeah, yeah, piece yeah. had been used before and used in big moments, it, emphasizing that moment gives that scene its identity. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that's definitely a much better example. I shouldn't have used the, uh, the Super Saiyan thing. Either way. Uh, but yeah, so, so a lot of people can associate a lot of these, these really memorable things. Yeah, with big moments. Okay. My favorite moment in the entire series, like overall, and it always has been, uh, is the moment where Goku kills Kid Buu with the spirit bomb at the very end in the, la- the final battle of Z, right? So going back to that embarrassing episode, that first episode of your podcast that was on in 2006... I talked about how I did not like that piece of music from movie seven that was used uh, in the Japanese version of that episode. All right. Well, well, hold on. Let me stop you there because this okay. is something I want to talk about. And this is um, this is one of those things that always comes across as talking down to people. And I don't mean it to be that way. It's not that uh, um, it's not the I'm older and I've seen shit, but a lot of it is the age you come into something. And the sure. first version you see is what imprints itself upon you. Totally. And totally. It, sometimes it can take a lot to overcome that. Sometimes it takes almost nothing. I mean, for me, the first animated version I saw of the show was with the Ocean Studios cast and Shuki Levy's score. That imprinted mm. itself onto me. I get over that real fast when I saw the Japanese score. For some people, right. that doesn't happen and it sticks with them. So as you're describing this, do you think that was what was happening with you? Uh, you know what? It is very possible. I will say that at the time that we did that episode, I had seen enough of the Japanese version and heard enough of the Japanese music to have liked it. Okay. Uh, so it, it definitely wasn't like, no, the Japanese music sucks and I like Falcona for life, you know, Renegade, whatever. No, I, I at the time, I li- and I, I still have a soft spot for it's the Super Saiyan 3 slash he defeats Kid Buu theme that Falcona did. I have a little bit of a soft spot for it. I have obviously since then grown to hugely appreciate Kiku- Kikuchi's music. And I will say even by this point... That that theme from movie seven is actually still not my favorite piece that he's ever done. And and I but that said, I do also still appreciate the original for what it is, and I'm not like this is the best and this is the whatever, this is the whatever. Here's what I'm gonna say to loop back to Sumitomo. So when the Kai Boo episodes were first beginning and I was hearing his stuff, I was like, yeah, I had the same pretty much the same kind of uh reaction as, as most other people did where it was like this is really really forgettable and nothing really much to it and etc you know kind of thing completely understandably um you know and then as i was moving through it and then as i was uh, I, I think when the cd came out i was beginning to remember a few certain tunes that were kind of coming throughout uh, different episodes that were being re- you know, reused etc um, you know, we had some of the arrangements of fight it out and all that kind of mixed in and it was yeah. like, oh, that's cool. So here's, here, here, here's what this comes down to. Uh, and so I apologize for repeating this to you because you've already heard this story off camera. But so when they were nearing the end and they did the episode where Boo dies, they played a theme that I believe is called caught between 
past and present, I think is what it's called. I'm not entirely sure. Um, they played this this particular theme that was used a few times throughout the show. It's um, it's I would say about as like soft or so, maybe a, a little bit more like grand than uh, than the movie Seven theme that was used in that scene originally. But okay, that track, that scene. And it was still in Japanese, Masako Nozawa's performance, and, and Kozo Shuyoya screaming his lungs out as he dies as Boo. That version of that scene, of Boo dying with Sumitomo's music in that part, makes me tear up. No other version of that scene, which is my favorite scene in the entire show, has ever done that. Matana. And it was because, and I realized in rewatching it every single time it does it, it is actually because of the track that he did for that particular part. Maybe you could even argue on that same note, then then maybe that, that was the only track he did that was really even that standout or that good. You could totally argue that, and I, and I wouldn't rebuke it, because I know that his stuff is not any it does not even come close to a lot of the other people we've talked about. But for that particular moment, which is a moment that is incredibly special to me, and it's my and still consistently been my favorite thing in all of everything with Dragon Ball. It worked. It, it fit and it impacted me on a visceral level of I had tears coming down. And you're granted that. You're certainly allowed to that. And I would never let my definition, my interpretation of scenes, my opinion of composers, uh, that can't take away from someone's experience. Like, the fact that I actively dislike that music can't suddenly make that emotion not happen to you. So I want to make that clear that no matter what the two of us are saying here, um, even if at the end of the day, we would love to take away your replacement score. <laughs> it can't actually happen. We can't actually take those memories away from you. Those are valid memories and cherish them. Something we haven't talked about a whole lot is placement of music. And I think it ties in with what you're talking about right there. Even though it was a new piece of music, placement is really important and something that we're very critical of with the Kikuchi replacement score in Dragon Ball Kai. It, it kind of feels like the ideal situation, isn't it? Where it's like, well, that's the music you love, isn't it? What's wrong with it being here? And there were a lot of problems with it. Um, yep. Not the least of which the fact that they didn't use the entire scope of all the music available to them combined with it being literally last minute replacement music. Panic button being hit there. We have yep. to score this immediately for the next broadcast. We have 99 episodes to do all at once. Holy crap, what do we do? Right. Yeah. Not just for our own internal repeats or delayed broadcasts. The international market needs this yesterday. We have to fix this problem. For, cri so, for Christ's sake, it was, it was airing in two different places on American television and right. two different points in time in the show. <laughs> <laughs> there were so many problems to overcome, and that immensely holds back that production there. Well, you know you know what I realized recently? when, when I Because I, I've, I've been showing uh, Dragon Ball Kai to some neighbors of mine, uh, one of which was a, a big DBZ fan of the Japanese version he has never seen the dub for Kai and I wanted to show it to him 
And uh, his girlfriend uh, didn't grow up with DBZ at all, and so we're introducing it to her, and she's been getting into it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, on the DVDs that I have, it switches to the Kikuchi music uh, from Volume 5 onwards. So I have the rare ones that still have the Yamamoto music on it. And I realized between listening to those again and then listening to all of the movie soundtracks, not all of which I had heard before, I realized what it was is a combination of two things. One... Because uh, I know that you haven't watched a whole lot of those with the replacement score. One, mm-hmm. a lot of it was movie music, like much more yeah. so than the show ever did, and in places where it didn't even get up to that yet. Yeah, like yep. they had they they had like ones from like I think movie like twelve or thirteen in like the Frieza and Cell stuff, and it was like yeah, what the absolutely, hell? yeah, yeah. And and the other thing that was a big disadvantage is the fact that. And I I know exactly why this happened is they had none of the background music tracks that were arrangements of Hedgehala or We Get a Power or any of the songs that were from Z. And, you know, and that's very obviously because, well, why would they do that? The theme song is, you know, is is Dragon Soul and et cetera. Why would they have remixes of songs that are not in this version of the show as background music? That doesn't make any sense. Right. It it was losing its identity there with the opening and ending themes, no longer being able to be used within the show itself with motifs, yet still being there for the eye catches. It was this completely strange experience. Yeah. So uh, I don't know that that I think it's so easy for people to look at that and be like, oh, man, this is why the Japanese music's sucks and doesn't fit it's like no you don't understand why this doesn't work this it's so, doesn't count it's so complicated and I'll, just just don't just please don't with me <laughs> and, and I, I guess kind of to tie that into going back to you know not not to trash sumitomo because i just you know i gave him a, a a glowing review of that one track but we talked a little bit about this in the the curb law that we did about the the beerus saga of dragon ball super as i called it yep something that i just don't understand about the production of the music and you were telling me about how it's very cheaply produced he has a very small kind of studio it's not a big orchestra or whatever it's not a high budget part of the production of dragon ball super the music it's not Okay, on my show, on Tome, I worked with, I want to say, three to four different main musicians throughout the series, right? And the main one that I had was this guy, Weston Durant, very, very talented composer, made a lot of really awesome, memorable melodies that I would, I would genuinely put up there with like any good Super Nintendo game soundtrack. And, you know, what I would do is I would often have a lot of the other guest composers do arrangements of his themes and have them throughout different parts of the show. Sometimes an entire like medley of like a bunch of great themes that all work together for one particular scene. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and, and, the, and I'll, I'll even say this too, because we sell the music on our Bandcamp page and the numbers don't lie. People love these arrangements and remixes and different things because they associate those with particular moments from the story that I Good told. Memories. And which are you? Yeah. Get, are you getting into the recap music, the Hetchala recap in in Super? Well, well, it's sort sort of. That wasn't the main point I was going to get to, but I will say yes. That is a track that instills instant emotion into it because oh my god, it's a big band orchestral arrangement of Chala Hetchala. That's fucking awesome. What I don't understand and this isn't difficult to do as far as i'm concerned hey 
why don't we have some arrangements in the background music of Hello, 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 or right, Starting right. Star, yep. or or the what's what is the opening? Uh, Chozetsu Dynamic. Or Chozetsu Cho, Dynamic. Yes. Why did I forget that? I'm sorry. I wrote lyrics to that. Yeah, <laughs> like why why don't why don't we have arrangements mm-hmm. of those themes as part of the background music of the fucking show? I like, know. I, yeah, uh, this is this is something we talked a little bit on your on your curb blog, and I think I looped it back to GT at that point. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that was the definition the identity of the show you need to incorporate that into the show to give it that full identity that full feeling and i wonder how much of that these days is how much they're licensing what they're able to use as a part of their licensing what is the agreement oh and is that is that is that in terms of like you mean like if they license just that song by yellow monkey or whatever the band name was and then like but they don't. They can't use it for arrangements in the show itself or whatever. Right, exactly. Um, and that's a little different because opening theme usually at least gets an eye catch jingle or something like that. But if we want to talk about the ending specifically, hello, 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 starring star. Yeah, I mean maybe the agreement is no. You're just the ending theme for twelve episodes. You're solely for cross promotion to sell CD singles. You are not yeah. a part of the show. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's a huge loss for the identity of the show and for the music of the show. Yeah. <sighs> It's, it's such a shame. And I mean, even like, you know, with Fight It Out, too, like in, in uh, the, the Bukai episodes, you know, we got a couple arrangements of that with the, the episode title cards and the eye catches. I, I actually would have loved more arrangements of that throughout the Bukai episodes because that, that, that theme, Fight It Out, I feel is just as like old school fitting of Dragon Ball as a lot of the old school songs that, that Kikuchi and Yamamoto worked on. And I, I, I love it for all its cheesy goodness. Well, hold on, because you're talking about this song that isn't even the theme song to the show that most people were pirating. Fight <laughs> yeah. It Out was the international, the final chapter's opening theme. What's what's so funny is that clearly before there was ever going to be a Japanese version of Final Chapters, that was the only opening theme, which is why that's used and integrated into the score. Yep. It was an in-house yeah. cheap theme song production, which is why they could reference it within their own musical score. Yeah. And, and yet not as much as I, I would have liked to hear yeah. was, was kind of what I meant. Although I think also the I think the episode preview theme of the international version also had an arrangement of that as well. I think like uh, like like Z originally did, too. And the eye catches as well. I mean, it's. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. What a weird production that was. I uh, shrug. So. Um, so let's. I mean, we've been going for almost an hour and a half now. We, I think we've talked about all the various different types of composers, types of music, our feelings on those types of music. Um, and we gave bits and pieces here along the way of what we think defines the music to the show. So let's take that all as a collective whole now, all those different types of music. Of course, we have our favorites. So, Chris, I'll ask you now, having gone through this history lesson, what if I was to say, Chris, Dragon Ball music? How would you describe Dragon Ball music to me? Magical not taking itself too seriously, a little cheesy, a little old school, and that's totally okay. <laughs> I think that sums it up really well. The only thing I'd say is, gotta give me my horns. <laughs> all those horns, all those brass, all those strings, 
all that, everything, all together. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's it's been, and you know what, I'll say this too, because I, I replied a little bit earlier today, but I'll say it again. I think that it's because of a lot of the stuff that I learned from you guys, and, you know, full circle, because of the 10 years of the podcast you've been doing, <laughs> hey uh, that that I, I grew to be a lot more just open and accepting to, you know, not the first thing that I heard, not the first thing that I, you know, experienced in watching the show and listening to what I was hearing on the show because, and, and even, you know, honestly, even before the, uh, even before the, the podcast was happening again, I used to go to Daisenshu EX when that was what it was. And I would pull up the lyrics page that you and Julian extensively worked on so hard. And I would sing to midis of Chala Hechala and all that stuff on like vgmusic.com. Remember that everybody? Uh, yeah, and 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 that that was middle school. That was like I didn't have oh God, the major exposure. I, I, I know, I know. I'm so I'm so sorry. Fif, fifteen, Kerber for fifteen. Remember? No, I did. No, but, I know. no but, but but seriously though, like th- that that was like I and I saw that stuff out on my own. I heard that stuff from the Spanish dub first. I, I fell in love with that stuff, and then I I have continually over years grown more and more appreciative of you know beyond what was just I was exposed to on Toonami and I'm very very glad for it because now when I show Dragon Ball to people uh, to other people who didn't experience it in any way shape or form I often try to expose them to what I think is the version that it, as as Schemmel put it you could just see it this way. You didn't have to change that much. You didn't have to make all those creative decisions because you were afraid that kids in the kitties in the America weren't going to like it or whatever. You don't have to do that. If you just leave it alone and let it be the magical thing, international hit that it is, people might just fucking like it for what it is. And that's what, huh. we, that's what we were saying in 99. And of course, we all are happy to be vindicated by that. So yes. many, many, many years <laughs> later. But oh, yeah, yeah, I mean, the fact remains the show was an international sensation worldwide before Funimation got to it and started changing its music. And as mm-hmm. much as marketing companies will tell you American kids are different, maybe they are a little bit, but not that much different that a show that is popular everywhere wouldn't connect with them on the same level. For, as far as I'm concerned, from an even bigger standpoint, good music is good music and shitty music is shitty music. <laughs> It's, it's as black and white as that. So <laughs> you say it's true, but one man's trash is another man's treasure. So, Chris, I I think we've had a full conversation here. Uh, I'm sure as I go back and listen and edit the conversation, I will probably think of something that I forgot. And I'm sure everyone listening along, they're up to this point, like um, but you forgot blah blah blah. Yes, we did. We forgot blah blah blah. So give us your comments on blah blah blah. And one of us may or may not even listen to those comments. Um, I say that I, I read everything. I do ingest every feedback that is sent to the show in a variety of ways. It's one of those things, though. Sometimes I feel I get to the end of the podcast. I really have said everything I have to say. And any more rebuttals would basically just be me repeating myself. So, well, well, from the from the from the past, Mike, uh, I want to say in addition to thank you for joining me for this hour and a half. I also want to apologize in advance for the fact that uh uh, once again, going back to that 2006 uh, Anime Next podcast when I destroyed the waveform doing my Kid Buu oh, scream. Whatever, um, there, there's a, there's a lot of um, 
peaking. You're going to have to edit in this recording. Well, luckily, I know what I'm doing these days, so I can work around that. Thank God for that. I guess where I'm going with is, you know, we we slid our wrists here. We put ourselves on the table. It's all out there for you. You have everything you uh, need to know about Chris and myself and what our musical past has been like with the series, what our likes and dislikes are. I don't know what else we can say, but if there's any genuine questions, of course, I will try to answer them. Um, Chris, maybe you can show up on the forum every once in a while. I don't know. Sure. I, I lurk these days, but totally. And you know what? And I'll, and I'll say, as, as we're kind of wrapping things up with the topic, I don't know if you're going to have much else after I this. I have but... no idea. Probably not. <laughs> uh, I, I will say, uh, I, I want to I wanna give... Mike and everybody, you know, everyone on the site, uh, major, major props for everything that they've done for the past, like, however many years it's been far beyond 10 just with the podcast now of, uh, you know, because you know, actually because Mike at this time has just done and a very extensive post about uh, checking your sources with doing news reports. These people work their asses off for little to nothing to deliver news about this franchise that is otherwise very, very muddled in its news by pretty much anybody else as far as I'm concerned. So, I don't know. I've, they, they work hard for you guys and, and gals and everything in between who listen to the show and who go to the forums and who just experience anything with the franchise, you know. And they're not official. They're not anything other than just a bunch of other fans like you and me who just want people to know what the hell is really going on about why Champa's so fat because that's a really important news story, <laughs> you know? So, so I want to thank you for, for, for over 10 years, again, just beyond the podcast, but the podcast has also been particularly special to me because it's kept me company for 10 years while I work on animation projects say, all consistently. I know well that the podcast keeps you company late at night and I'm not sure how I feel about being your late night partner, but whatever. Well, well no, you've, you've actually, in fact, I, I believe you have consistently, what, what, what year did you start the podcast the again? The podcast 2005? started 2005, yeah. Okay. So I think that you, you have been through two entire incarnations of a single show that I made because I was doing TV Tome Adventures at the time that this podcast started. Oh, Lord. And then I, and I finished it, and then I finished Tome, which was a remake of that in the time that you've been doing it. Well, <laughs> so. I'm not sure what that says about me. I'm not sure what that says about you. It says something <laughs> about someone. <laughs> All right. Are we, should, we, should we bring this home? We, yes. This topic... <laughs> is now over. We now transition to whatever the rest of this episode may happen to be. Chris, thank you. Goodbye. And that is episode 392 of our podcast here at Consensu. Thank you again to Mary for joining me for a little bit at the beginning of the show, just to bounce some thoughts off of. And then Chris joining me for quite an extended period of time talking about music in Dragon Ball, what defines music in Dragon Ball and how that contributes to the identity of the show. As you know, you can always check us out www.kanzenshuu.com. We are, of course, on all the regular social media as well. Join us Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Google Plus if you want all that good stuff. We are there. We'll talk to you there. And that's really it. So for Mary and for Chris and of course all the Consensu dudes, Heath, Julian, and Jake, my name is Mike Vegito EX is what you may see me online as. And we'll see you next time here on the show. This was 392. Next time it'll be 393. Shugging onward to 400. Didn't quite hit 400 before that 10 year mark, but close enough. I'm okay with that. See you next time. Thank you.